Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today we'll be going back to the 15th century to explore the emerging professionalization of composers through a close reading of a group of pieces, some quite famous, some not so famous, with Dr. Jane Hatter. In her new book from Cambridge University Press, Composing Community in Late Medieval Music, Self-Reference, Pedagogy, and Practice, Dr. Hatter effectively contextualizes pieces that have been studied for hundreds of years, including Dufay's Ave Regina Chalorum III, Akagem's Missa Prolationem, and Josquin's Missa La Marme Super Voces Musicalis. She's identified a group of compositions which refer to other musicians or explore complex theoretical topics. Rather than looking at these pieces as singular compositions by a handful of prominent composers, as they've been studied in the past, Hatter sees these works as evidence of an international community of musicians that might have been separated geographically and isolated by their itinerant lifestyles, but who were connected through a shared attitude towards art and their own sense of themselves as composers and musicians. Welcome, Dr. Hatter. I'm so excited to be able to talk to you this book about with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk. Well, first, um, I'd love to know just a little bit about your own background and how you got interested in this topic. As it, as at first glance, some of these pieces have been studied for so many years. Um, I can imagine that it might have been a bit uh, daunting to take them on in a new book. Yeah. So, um, a little bit about my background. I was a singer in my undergrad. I did um, vocal performance and um, sort of came to music history because I realized I'd been taking all of the classes required for the majors. So, um, and, and so I came to this repertoire as somebody who loved to sing and loved to sing the repertoire. Um, and I, I was kind of, you know, I was a broke. I loved to sing broke music and I just kept getting earlier and earlier. Um, and I just, but I do remember in my music history survey one class sort of listening to the, um, the Misa Prolaziona by Ockegem and kind of going, wow, I do not understand this piece of music at all. <laughs> like this is a totally um, bizarre and you know um, confusing piece of music. Like why write this piece? And um, and then I had no idea that I would end up writing a book about that <laughs> way back then. But um, it's kind of like a persistent question that just kept coming back to me. And I would come across these other pieces like. In hydraulis with its very bizarre constructed tenor and um, and then the little bits and pieces of of like relationships that we see and pieces like um, Dufay's Averigina Chilorum with his you know requests both for himself and for this community of singers. Um, so it was kind of like these little experiences like as I was studying and reading and learning more and more about 15th and 16th century music that kind of just kept like the persistent kind of nagging questions. And, um, and then I finally, you know, I had kind of a different sort of topic in mind, because this was also the, the, the topic for my dissertation. And I had a different topic sort of in mind that was 
a little bit clearer cut, a little bit safer in a way, because, you know, as you mentioned, these pieces, they're some of the most, I mean, some of the pieces, obviously not all of the pieces, but some of the pieces are pieces that, you know, people have been writing about for over a hundred years that um, are very iconic. And to try and say something new about them was a little bit daunting, but it just like these questions kept coming back and I, I couldn't um, stop thinking about them. So I ended up deciding to write the dissertation, which then turned into the book, um, just basically because I was incredibly curious and I, I just couldn't give up these like, what, what does this tell us about these people as people and as a network and a community of, of um, professionals who, who was interconnected in a lot of ways? Well, maybe we could start by really defining the group of pieces that you're talking about. So as we go forward, people who are listening to this can sort of have a sense of what we're talking about. So you have a repertoire that spans about 100 years, 1450 to 1550, and contains about 100 pieces. And by the way, you have a really awesome appendix at the end that is incredibly helpful. (laughs) I'm sure that was a lot of work just to get that appendix together. But anyway, you have this great list of about 100 pieces that you call self-referential. So maybe you could just, let's just start by having you explain what that means and what are the different kinds of pieces that you've included in this this kind of uh, found repertory of self-referential pieces. Yeah, so that, yeah, that list, it's funny because it, it contains 100 pieces, but it actually contains a lot more because they were all the pieces I had to eliminate, you know, that I was like, is it self-referential? And I kind of had to determine what I meant by self-referential. So when I talk about self-reference in music of this repertoire, it's either um, a piece that the text discusses either a specific musician or um, some sort of like the professional concerns of musicians. So, you know, musicians, we tend to complain about certain things like lack of funds, um, lack of money, or, um, and, or just like, you know, have some of these are prayer concerns. So like, um, pray for me, do is obviously a very famous one. And then I felt like there's another kind of self-reference, which is not textual, which is where the music itself is constructed around some kind of concept from either music theory or music pedagogy. So, of course, for instance, you know, Misa Pulationum by Akagem, which has these um, mensuration canons, um, as well as canons at different intervals. So it's using this concept from, from music, um, music theory or other pieces where, you know, the Cantus Firmus, which generally is borrowed from chant um, in rep- music of this time period, instead of it being a piece of chant, it's some kind of either a musical figure for music theory um, or some kind of constructed thing um, that's a a melody that's constructed using some sort of theoretical principle like solmization, syllables, or the hexachord. Um, So the other thing that interested me is, you know, you've come up with a self-referential category, but then you also um, have a very, uh, you know, a pretty set chronological period 1450 to 1550 and I and but as you point out in the book you know there is music that might be able to fit into either one of these categories in some way or another either written before or after that time period so why did you focus in on that particular 100 years well for me I feel like there's a lot of other things going on in that 100 year um, period 
particularly um, music printing starts and in Venice around 1500. And also at the same time, we have this first people who are called composers and are clearly um, hired for the their creative output in terms of writing music. Um, so I felt like this period was a really important period to talk about self-reference because it was such an important time when other things are going on in the professional in, in our in our professional understanding of what it meant to be a composer and a musician. So one of the threads that runs through the book is the way that you frame um, how these uh, pieces work within their cultural context um, in relationship to a group of visual artworks that you call the St. Luke's paint, the St. Luke paintings, which I thought was really fascinating the way that you were able to, you know, uh, create this association between um, this particular group of artworks and the particular group uh, piece of uh, pieces of music that you were looking at. And I think it's, you know, can you explain that connection and, you know, how did you come about to uh, come about to that particular association, which, which seems to be very important to your overall argument? Yeah. So those paintings that, um, that I talk about in the book, they are all paintings of St. Luke, who was the patron saint of painters. Um, and they were also associated with the guilds of St. Luke, which were guilds, so they're both religious and professional associations of professional artists, um, so sometimes painters and illuminators um, and a few other trades would be connected. So it's a trade and also a religious sort of association. And these paintings, um, they are of St. Luke in the act of creating an image of the Virgin Mary and child. Um, and so these paintings are really interesting because um, they are both historical because they actually, um, in the 15th and 16th century, they believed that St. Luke had created an icon of the Virgin Mary, um, which is a different painting altogether. It's um, sort of a Byzantine or pseudo-Byzantine um, image of the Virgin and child. And there were numerous copies of this around how they reconciled that. I'm not exactly sure because there were like the, the, the guild of the image of um, the Virgin Mary that was created by St. Luke. And, you know, they actually kind of think had multiple ones that, that they believed were created from or at least closely connected to this actual act of creating a painting of um, the Virgin Mary. Um, but these paintings, so they're like a painting of the process of making a painting. Um, so they include a lot of elements of sort of 15th century professional identity um, and in a number of ways. So they have um, they have the St. Luke in the act. Often, sometimes he's actually drawing the Virgin Mary um, and using a particular special technique called silver point, which was sort of a new 15th century technique of sketching a very detailed um, sketch of the Virgin Mary. So the Virgin Mary is kind of seen um, as this almost like a 15th century patron um, in these paintings. And so this patron for the creator um, interaction is very interesting in these paintings. Um, and then they also usually St. Luke himself um, had traditionally been depicted as this sort of bearded, you know, old 
kind of guy, but he starts being painted, um, particularly starting with Roger van der Weyden's um, St. Luke Drawing the Virgin, which was created sometime, we think, between 1425 and 1430. Um, so he, was, he creates this painting and paints himself into the role of St. Luke. So he is this, um, he becomes St. Luke, um, Roger van der Weyden becomes St. Luke. So, and that's something that was pointed out by James Morrow, who's an art historian. Um, so I think that this, um, this kind of like, and, and in addition to that, like these paintings also have a lot of professional um, tools. So, so like there's this Roger van der Weyden's painting is the first one. And it's the first one of a tradition that goes on for about 150 years of many, many paintings of this same topic that can be associated with guilds. Um, and the techniques, the painterly techniques that they start showing in these paintings become even more complicated. Um, they include like paints and pigments being prepara- prepared. Um, there's woodworking in the background where they're like preparing the panel for the panel painting. All of these, uh, this tradition of, of paintings, um, I came across it actually when I was in Antwerp, the whole idea of guild paintings. Um, I was in Antwerp at the Cathedral um, of Our Lady there, and they were having an exhibit of all of the guild paintings um, associated with altars and side altars in the church. And I was looking at these really interesting, like 15th and 16th century um, depictions of professional identity. So like the Baker's Guild, it's, you know, it's a traditional sort of, you know, religious topic, but then there's bread everywhere. They've got bread, they've got rolls, they've got croissants, you know, or not croissants, but um, because I think that'd be inaccurate, but um, they have all of these different kinds of bread and those like professional um, the professional identity of the group that's funding this, this um, painting is really brought to a fore in, in an interesting way. Um, and so that's when I started to like go, well, is there another group that's kind of similar to professional um, musicians? And can I see this like, because I, I, I was already thinking about this topic of tools of, of the trade, of the musical trade. And I could see this connection between the tools of the musical trade and the tools of the bakerly trade. So then I started to look for like um, professional artists. And I found that there was this whole tradition of St. Luke paintings. And, um, and so like, you know, I, I kind of see it as equivalent, the kind of intergenerational tributes um, that we have in some of these, these, um, so these, um, St. Luke paintings, very similar to the kind of, you know, laments for musicians of the previous generation that we have in the self-referential um, repertoire that I'm looking at, or um, painting yourself into the role of St. Luke, to me seems really similar to putting your own name into um, tropes added to the Ave Regina Chilorum Antiphon, um, or having the pigments and paints, um, the preparation for that, or steadying your hand with a dowel so that you can apply paint to canvas, that seems like to me very similar in a lot of ways to including a hexachord as the cantus firmus of your mass setting or using solmization syllables to create some kind of um, structure around which you're, you're composing your piece. 
So that was kind of, it was actually, it was kind of random that I ended up at Antwerp at this exhibit, but that was how, how the idea kind of came about. Well, I think the, um, the relationship to the St. Luke's paintings really um, strengthens your argument quite a bit because it shows that this is um, what you're finding is not being done in a vacuum, but within a much larger cultural context that includes other artwork, you know, other kinds of art, which I think just, you know, strengthens the whole, um, you know, strengthens your cultural context that much more. So I really appreciated that part of the book and how you kept coming back to to that relationship. So um, it was very cool, <laughs> I thought. Yeah. Um, um, so the other thing I wanted to bring out was, um, you know, when I picked up this book and I saw a community, I thought, oh, a court, a convent, uh, you know, that, that was the community I was thinking of, but that, that's not uh, at all what you, what, how you're using community. Um, in some ways, I mean, this is anachronistic, but it's, it's almost, if I understand you correctly, a virtual community. It's a, it's sure. not talking. Yeah. So it's not talking about a particular guild in a particular place or, um, it's, uh, not talking about, you know, again, a, a particular cathedral choir or anything like that. Instead, you have this much larger, more amorphous community in mind. Now, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you mean about by community, um, in, in this book. How are you using that term? What kind of community are you talking about? Yeah. So it's a community of professionals. So people who have, um, experienced a similar education, um, so I think musicians at this time period, their community was really embedded within the structures of the Catholic Church um, and the education that they received as choir boys um, and and the sort of the ways that the, the structure of the Catholic Church created um, sort of interdependency between different composers in different places. And it really is, as you said, a very... A much kind of similar to a, a virtual community today um, in that a lot of the repertoire seems to have been um, circulating in in sort of paper copies, you know, in a physical copy, often, you know, like just one sheet. You know, what we have today, we have manuscripts, right? But the manuscripts probably got copied from single sheet copies of these pieces that were, that were um, moving around the trade networks. So it's a very, um, it's a community of people with similar education, similar interests, um, and who were supporting each other. You know, often there was, you know, you needed to have some connections to somebody who was in Rome in order to ensure your, um, your ability to get a benefice or to have some kind of financial stability. So um, it's often, and, and sometimes that person was somebody who you knew growing up as a child in a matrice in um, in northern Europe somewhere, so um, it's it's a it's a it's a community of professionals who are connected by education, and they may not even necessarily like some of the people we some of the people we have names for some of them we just have no idea who they were, um, and so it's kind of hard to define it in a really like grounded way. Um, but I think that with this kind of looking at the ways that they're expressing professional identity in the, in the actual compositions, it adds another layer to our understanding of them that's a little deeper than just like, this person's name happens to be written in this document. And even then, like names were so amorphous at this time, 
Um, even like Josquin, that, that means little Jos, right? So um, there's all these different names that people at some point thought were Josquin and were redefining um, what those names mean. And I kind of wanted to kind of get away from that. And it's more like, does it really matter if it's that Josquin or a different Josquin? It's more, um, um, I think it's more inclusive to kind of recognize that even when we don't know exactly who it was, we can still um, validate the existence of these people who made music um, so long ago. So do you think this is a community that would have been recognized at the time by people who were in that community? I mean, obviously, people in 1450 did not know people in 1550. But just sort of when we're talking about a particular time, is this a community they would have recognized? Or is this a community that is much more obvious looking back on it from the historical perspective? I think that there would have been aspects of it um, that were recognized. So um, Rob Rob Wegman writes about um, the companions of music of various churches and um, some of his evidence for these uh, companions and these groups um, is from registers, payment registers for gatherings of them. So people who got together and had a communal meal. And the reason it gets written down is because, you know, somebody who is recognized as a sort of accomplished musician is visiting and so they get higher quality wine because there's a you know they they can justify the expense um so i think there is a sense of recognition but it's much harder to define because these people were professionally engaged as um, members of the catholic church so that was um or sometimes it's catholic church or as members of the household of some um noble person um, so sometimes in his household or sometimes in his chapel um, or her chapel. So um, the, the, it wasn't like there was a list like you have with some guilds. Guilds often have membership rosters. Um, so it's, it's harder to define, but I think it would have been recognized at least on a sort of informal basis. So you brought, have brought this up a couple of times, but I want to sort of nail it down. You've been talking about profession, um, you know, that these are uh, professional composers or they were hired as composers. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, this idea of professionalization and how um, composers were seeing themselves as being professionals as opposed to maybe how, pe- how musicians thought of themselves, say, in you know, 1350 or something. You know, what, what has happened now starting in around 1450 and moving forward that makes, um, makes us feel like it's appropriate to think of them as being professionals? Well, so I think that it's still really very fuzzy throughout the 15th and 16th century, who is a composer and who is a musician and what you're being hired for. Um, but the thing that happens is that um, uh, oh, Isaac is actually hired um, to be a composer um, for the Holy Roman Emperor while he is in residence in Florence. Um, so he's not physically there. So his compositions are being sent. And that is um, how he's sort of fulfilling his professional, um, professional obligations. Um, but I think that um, all of these people were also singing and being paid to sing. Um, there isn't a real clear definition between music that is composed versus music that is improvised. Um, so it's 
it is really hard to to define at this point. Um, and the thing that we really have that that shows, you know, sort of people being composed and being composers is prints. So the beginning of printing and having single composer prints um, that really foreground these people as people who were making um, made music um, and, and in a professional way. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You just used another term I was interested in that uh, that you um, uh, introduce in the book, and you said the music was made music, and and in the book you call it a made object. What what do you mean by that exactly? Well, at this point, so in the 15th century, I would say that most musicians, um, especially church musicians, they're mostly singing chant, um, and then sometimes they are improvising on chant. Um, and then very rarely, a few people are writing um, music that is copied out and sort of fixed with notation um, and written into choir books that can be performed again. Um, so, and that, that I think is a really important shift, the, that shift from being a musician, being somebody who sings chant, often sings chant from memory or improvised to um, starting to rely more on written chant books and then starting to rely more on written polyphony um, in a, in, in, to a larger degree. And of course, it's not something that happens like overnight. It's more like a tendency as, as you have more people who are music literate um, and who, ca- who can use those written out sources then there's more likelihood that you will write them and fix them in notation. Um, So I think we've covered a lot of the sort of new terms that you're using and um, ideas of the book. So maybe we can dig into a little bit more uh, in the specifics of these two different categories. So the first half of the book is um, devoted to music that references other musicians in one way or another. And maybe we could just start with what is what do you see as the overall significance of naming a composer in a piece? Like, why should we even pay attention to that? Well, for me, it's just um, it's really it's a rare thing to be able to connect a piece with particular other people. Um, so it kind of sheds a little bit of light on on the networks and the con- connections between different pe- members of the community. Um, even if it's not necessarily like that, we, we can't really say that somebody wrote this piece because that person meant something to them, you know, so, you know, I wrote a lament for this person because, um, that person was very important to me, but at least it shows that they were interacting with each other, which is really quite rare at this time. Um, because there is, I mean, it's 500, over 500 years ago and, um, anything that we have is just kind of something that got written down and then we have to, to interpret it. Um, but sometimes it's, you know, like it's hard not to, to see some sense of like the relationships 
and the physical spaces in which they were working um, and and living. Um, and I think that that's what kind of like it, it grounds some of this repertoire um, in a particular place and time. Um, and like and, and it makes it kind of more uh, real, I guess, to me in some ways, cases like, for instance, to think about like um, the Mortua Nevre, where it actually talks about um, the body beneath the stone and the physical space of the church where um, this person who was important to somebody else, their body is going to lie forever. And that's something that's very, um, you know, even if I don't know if they actually cared about each other, it's a, a relationship that I can understand um, because it's, you know, I, I would, I would, I could be in that space too. It's something that's common between 15th century people and, and modern people. So one of the types of pieces that name specific musician is the lament. And I thought it was really interesting that you pointed out that before Josquin dies, laments are about a lot of different people. And after Josquin dies, the laments we have <laughs> are almost all about Josquin. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, why that might be and what does that tell us or does it tell us anything about some kind of cultural shift that uh, you would find so many laments about one person uh, in that second part of the century or second part of the, your your century <laughs> from 1500 yeah. to 1550. Yeah. So, I mean, I think Josquin just stands out so often in um, so many ways. Um, and, you know, a lot of other people have written about Josquin and the age of print um, and historiography, Jessianne Owens. So, um, I think that there are the act of, of uh, the fact that his repertoire ends up in prints um, and that there's a lot more people who can access it. You know, the beginning of this kind of um, the canonic status of certain works. Um, I think that when people, a lot of people begin to interact with the prints of Josquin, I think that's why we end up with so many laments for Josquin. Um, and in a sense, it, there's a more of a distance there because it begins to be that these laments are um, laments for the composer and the works, ne not necessarily the, the person. Whereas the earlier laments, to me, they seem more um, indicative of actual relationships between two people who, who knew each other. Um, and I think that that's why that shift happens. It's really, it, it, it aligns directly with um, print and print making um, the repertoire last longer in um, the so Joscan's output last longer in the repertoire and also have a broader dissemination. Um, do you see uh, any other differences? Is that is that the main difference between these kinds of laments? It's just Joscan or not? <laughs> or are there also kind of, I don't know, different ways that they refer to them or musical differences that are sort of specific to the laments or is it mostly just sort of the the who they're referring to I guess I think that the earlier laments tend to be very individualized um they each kind of take a different um approach because it really hasn't been standardized very well um and I feel like with the the Joscan laments there's there's become sort of more of a 
standard language of of mourning, um, and also um, they tend to. I, am I? This is very kind of subjective, but they just tend to be a little bit more monumental, a little bit more distant, um, and maybe less personal. That's fascinating. <laughs> I just <laughs> I love that difference. Um, so the second half of the book is this music about music, as you term it. Um, so music that has some relationship to a theoretical or some, you know, a, other kind of con- musical concept, not so much a person. Um, and uh, so this is true of your of the first half of the book as well. But one of the great things about your book is that you take some pieces that. I think anyone who has taken a music history survey of the, you know, Renaissance and medieval periods would know because, you know, they're just such standard pieces and you really contextualize them within a larger context, which is something that desperately needs to be done in lots of different areas of musicology. So I love that about this book, but I particularly noticed that aspect of it in the second half of the book, because you were looking at, say, the Misoprolationum, which is just such a warhorse. And as you point out, some of these pieces have been used as examples in theory pedagogy um, for literally hundreds of years since since not long after they were actually composed. But yet you, you don't think that they were initially pedagogical pieces. So can you talk a little bit about you know, how you're looking at these pieces a little bit differently um, than the typical, um, I don't know, scholarly uh, um, uh, perspective on this group of really famous pieces? For sure. Yeah. So I think that those pieces, like some people, that was actually, I should say, um, amend a little bit. That was also one of the things that brought me into this this topic um, to just discuss it because people would often call them pedagogical or didactic. And yet they're very, very complicated pieces, far too complicated for anybody who is just learning music. Um, so I felt like, you know, if it is pedagogical, what is it pedagogical or of, or how is it pedagogical? Um, and, and I mean, I think that every, everybody can recognize the connection to pedagogy, but, I wanted to understand, like, what what is it that um, that Akagam was trying to do um, when he when he wrote these pieces, and who was he trying to communicate with? And I think that what I do that's different is that I try to really contextualize it within the um, the, the humanistic culture of the time and the the discussions that people were having around learning and the liberal arts um, and the anxieties that some of these people were having, these professional anxieties about, you know, the value of, of music. And, um, and so I, I try to kind of see that, like, within these sort of um, elite intellectual communities, it wasn't just music that was being discussed, but music was one of many things that are being discussed. Um, so I look at um, Anthony Grafton and Lisa Jardine's work on sort of scholarly reading communities. And I try to apply that to these pieces because if we think of them in their original sources as being something that could be um, consumed in a similar environment um, where you know people were discussing um, a lot of different topics and ideas, 
um, they start to kind of have a, an interesting intellectual life um, that that can kind of contribute to our understanding of how people in the late 15th century um, were valuing music as a part of the liberal disciplines. Um, and also, I was really struck by the fact that you do have this small group of pieces that show up in pedagogical texts mm-hmm. early on. And I could find those same examples if I opened up a theory, you know, some kind of uh, 15th century theory book now, or if I was looking at the Grout uh, music history book. Yeah. Um, what does that say about music history pedagogy that we are using the same examples um, for the same concepts for so many years? Well, I think that, you know, we're all musicians, so <laughs> it's like the same issues keep cropping up, you know, so I think um, it's, it is music theory, right, in a sense, um, and it's interesting, too, like, for instance, the, um, the hexachord mass of Benoit um, actually gets altered, right, um, in the way that it's, it's not actually used as an example in music theory, um, 16th century music theory treatises. Um, and this is Ruth DeFord's work, by the way. I, I just bring it into my book as, as an example, but um, it, it gets altered in its mensuration. Um, and, it, and it gets used as an example of mensuration, but it, but it is like the piece itself is structured around a hexachord. So it's like this sort of oh, it's theoretical. Okay, I'll just use it for whatever I want to, not necessarily like what it actually is supposedly about. Well, I guess maybe it means that we um, don't have any new tricks or something. (laughs) Because I sure have seen things that I think, I don't really think that's what that piece is about, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's theory, right? It's theory. Yeah. It's for those theorists, not me. <laughs> of course, right. Well, it's just, uh, it, it was really, I guess, you know, it's one of those things where if I thought about it, I guess I knew that just because of, you know, being alive as a musicologist, but it, it really struck me at sort of how um, tradition bound the ways that we look at certain topics have become that you can you know, start with uh, an example that someone used in, I don't know, 1600 or whatever. And, and we I just haven't updated it since. I mean, that's, that's really, really quite astounding, I yeah. think. So I think that's, per- I think that's part of it. But I also think it's like, um, it, things, I think we have to remember that things get reused in a lot of different ways, you know, like somebody might write, write something for one reason, and then it gets reinterpreted very quickly after it's written. And, um, and it's like, who knows what the actual idea was. So. Right. Um, so just as you noted that there's sort of a pre and post Josquin lament tradition, so to speak, you also see this category of music about music as you talk about it, um, that there's a difference between compositions written before about 1500 and music written about af- after 1500. Um, can you talk a little bit about that shift as well? Well, I think um, the biggest thing, obviously, that happens about 1500 is music printing. Um, so the the stuff before that, and it's part part of it is actually the music, and part of it's just what we have left because there's a really big hole in the sources 
um, in the late 15th century. We just have very little um, little that, that remains. Um, so I think, but the biggest thing is that that we start having music printing and the result of that is that we have a lot more um, music to work with. I guess that's always the problem, right? Is is are what you're seeing actually what happened or is it something to do with the, the sources that you have access to? And, and, you know, at one point when I first started researching in music, I thought, oh, it must be so hard. You know, I'm in 19th and 20th century, so much easier. We have a million sources, but it really doesn't matter. Everybody <laughs> runs into that problem. Maybe it's more obvious with these early sources, but I think you just never quite know if you're looking at you know, how much are you looking at as a result of the how the sources have been saved and have survived over time and, and stuff? So, yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, it's like sometimes the sources are so far removed, like what we have, you know, the source for um, for Aborigine Chilorum is a Roman manuscript, but it's so clearly connected to Dufai and Cambrai. Um, but we don't have a Cambrai source for it. So. Yeah, it's really challenging. Um, so the, one other thing that you argue about these music about music pieces is that um, they are so virtuosic in their compositional skill that you call it um, drawing attention to their own knowledge and skill. I'm, I'm quoting you there, that that's sort of one of the points anyway of these pieces. But of course, there are pieces before 1450 that do that. I'm thinking like Ars Subtilior, for instance. So what do you think mm -hmm. is the difference in the cultural context between, you know, how this music draws attention to, you know, compositional virtuosity as opposed to maybe earlier music that does the same thing? Well, I think um, it's it's kind of dependent upon who is reading it. And I do think there are a lot of connections between this repertoire and our subtilior in terms of the kinds of environments that it was being consumed in. Um, but I think that like one of the things that I I think I bring out in the book and that I think is important is always to, when we look at these pieces, be remembering that we're not being expected to comprehend them orally. Uh, there's a lot of it that would have been appreciated visually because the, uh, and, and the original notation is going to provide a different visual experience of the piece than just listening to it. Um, and I think that that is one of the ways in which the composers are are drawing our attention um, to their skill by, you know, creating these very interesting visual sources that um, so that can be appreciated, of course, by professional musicians who was who were part of the community, but also by non-professionals. So by patrons, people who had a sort of basic liberal arts education, which would have included understanding music and being able to read um, basic music and, and recognize particular um, sort of symbols of musical education and uh, music making. So for instance, especially like the hexachord, right? If you are somebody, a patron with very little knowledge and incapable of singing a very complex polyphonic piece, but you look at the score and you see the hexachord, 
um, that can really, I think, draw, you know, you, you can, you can see it, you can, you're brought into the discourse about it. Um, but then when you hear like the complexity of the piece itself, then you can appreciate both like what you know and what you don't know. Well, and I wonder if that is one way that's a little different from at least some of those absolutelior examples where they also on top of that are, you know, in the shape of a harp or something. So rather than, mm-hmm. you know, appreciating the actual notation, which you sort of have to for the hexachord, for instance, you're appreciating this sort of artistic pun they're making in the manuscript. And, and, and that doesn't happen in this repertoire, right? They don't do any kind of those. I mean, you can tell I work on the 19th century, but um, they don't do that sort of thing in this repertoire, right? Where they're sort of creating these different ways of notation, I guess, or or these art, this visual art out of the notation. Yeah. It's not as extreme for sure, but I mean, there is one example where um, the, um, the Benoit, Anthony Usquay, Limina, it's actually the tenor is, a bell like the a picture of a bell and then it's you know it tells you the note that you're supposed to sing um so that's but that's a very extreme example but no for the most part it's not very like it's not artwork <laughs> in and of itself right it's about the music itself <laughs> like there's something something structural about the music which i think is is, is so fascinating um, so yeah. maybe we can sort of skip to the end now and just there you end the piece with a discussion of a Josquin motet, um, Ilibata de Virgo Nutrix, um, which it sounds, which you were described as a capstone piece. And I thought, you know, we really haven't talked about any one piece in, in particular, but maybe we could end our conversation about the book by, can you talk a little bit about that particular piece and, and how it's, um, it does uh, work as a capstone of everything that you're talking about. Yeah. So that is, I mean, first of all, it is one of those pieces that it's very difficult to talk about because so many people have, have talked about it and performed it. And um, so it's, it's a really, but it's an absolutely fascinating piece for this particular book because it both includes um, Josquin's name and it's actually how we know how his name should probably be spelled. Um, and then it also has this, um, it's structured around a tenor that is derived through solmization syllables from the word. And I think the word that he's deriving it from is Maria. There are some other interpretations of that, but um, it's a Marian motet and la mi la can be translated into the vowels of Maria. AIA. Um, so um, this piece, it's kind of a cool piece because although many, many people have written about it, it still kind of frustrates us a little bit um, because musically it's, um, it seems lopsided. So the first half is very esoteric, um, kind of very, I would almost say like some people have proposed that it was actually written at two different times, like the first half and the second half. So the first half is kind of backwards looking and um, 15th century, we'll just say for the, just, you know, in a very general way. And the second half is very, um, uh, it's very different. It's much um, more sensual in a sense. And um, I think that understanding 
the way that these um, different conversations about professionalization and um, humanistic sort of discourses about music um, starting to have more, and, and music theory in general, starting to have more sort of practical application in music itself and music making um, it really helps to understand the really kind of stark contrast between the first half, which um, is a very sort of, it looks back towards um, sort of Greek music theory, and it is the part that includes the acrostic. And all of it, you know, this, this very sort of esoteric first half leads up to this, you know, this discussion of let us say Ave Maria. And then the second half is much more like a kind of a song. It's more like the sort of the kind of <clears throat> musical prayers that these people would have been um, performing for their kind of bread and butter. Um, and then in the course of that second half, it even actually says, you know, pray for those who sing la mi la in your praise, um, which includes the, this is this prayer that can kind of the la mi la, meaning, of course, you know, the tenor itself, which is singing the notes la mi la throughout the whole piece. That's all that that voice ever says is la mi la. Um, and or but it can also like for um, have this sort of more universal outlook, which is for all of musicians who are participating um, in music making. Um, and so I think that if we if we think about these the kind of anxieties of these professional musicians around this time who are, you know, trying to really, you know, give themselves a space um, and, and, and build a community that kind of can help um, musicians, whether it's a community that includes other musicians or a community that includes people who support musicians. Um, it kind of explains the, the, the contrasts in, in musical style between the two halves of the, of the motet. Well, I think that um, you have found a new way to talk about it. So good for you. <laughs> um, and really, <laughs> really quite interesting and, and so persuasive as a way to think about it rather than thinking about, oh, this was, you know, some kind of, um, you know, two separate pieces or something or some, or, um, you know, the way that, the way that you've integrated these different ways of talking, of, of approaching that, um, music that is evident in that piece really makes so much sense after you've looked at this larger context. And it's just the validation once more about, you know, how important it is for us to see music within a larger context and within a larger context of other pieces, rather than constantly going back and focusing on just a few well-known, well-studied pieces that have sort of taken on, you know, masterwork status or a few composers that have taken on, you know, this sort of status of the great composer of their periods. It, it's just, it's, you know, it's a really a revelation to be able to look at it in this much larger um, uh, landscape. Thanks so much. So before we wrap this up, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit more, you know, you, this is a huge project. It sounds like it was your dissertation too. So that's many, many years of working on this project. What are you working on now? Well, um, so I have, I've always kind of had an interest um, in women musicians, and it's one of my great frustrations of being somebody who is so drawn to 15th and 16th century music and repertoire that the, you know, it's, it's not that women musicians didn't exist. And as we are coming um, you know, with Laurie Strauss's book and other people 
um, other people's work that we're coming to realize that there were a lot of women who were making music. Um, and so the new project um, is, I hope, and I'm hoping it will, you know, it's in its very early stages, obviously, because this book is just, just done. But I'd like to kind of do my best to try to um, connect representations. So I, I do a lot, obviously, with art history and looking at what um, visual art and what music as a visual object can tell us about music. And we do have quite a few um, representations, so visual representations of female musicians. So the new project, I'm hoping I can start to kind of take some of these representations of female musicians and connect them more closely um, with repertoires that are that we're becoming we're, we're beginning to realize were um, part of the female experience as well as the male experience. Um, so that's the the new book project. Well, that sounds fascinating. I'm so excited to hear you're working on that because like you, it's it is frustrating when you go to this earlier music and you just you see you don't see a lot of representation about half the population. <laughs> so um exactly. and as a you know, obviously I don't study this music, but I do teach it and it's it's difficult to um you know, as you say, there's new research, but there's it's there's not a lot of it yet. So that's really exciting to hear that you're, yeah. you're turning to that um, that world. And I hope that like it's it's really hard too because I think what we have to do if we're going to do this is also start recognizing how much music wasn't written down, and that even if it doesn't written down, it doesn't mean it's not valid. So. Yes. Yeah, well, I think that's <laughs> absolutely, and I think that's true across the board that the only way to write women. Um, and other groups into music history is to stop um, valuing one kind of music production because that's there. Mm -hmm. There lies only men, right? So you have to you have to uh, yeah. think about other ways to um, find music and to value music for sure. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, I've so enjoyed talking to you about your book, Dr. Hatter. It's it's just a really interesting book and a great approach to this repertoire. And um, it was great to be able to talk to you and learn more about it and, and sort of explore the, the topics that you look at. So my name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music, a podcast of the New Books Network. And I've been talking to Jane Hatter about her new book from Cambridge University Press um, titled Composing Community in Late Medieval Music, Self-Reference, Pedagogy, and Practice. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>